I want to begin um, with a prayer, and this is a prayer um, by Thomas Merton. We're going to be talking about Thomas Merton this morning, and so this is a prayer that uh, I think comes out of his book called Thoughts, Thoughts in Solitude. So let's pray together. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. So thank you, everybody, for being here this morning. Uh, whether this was your first choice or whether you just couldn't get into Lee's class down the hallway, uh, I'm glad to be your second choice or maybe your third choice. Um, in this class, it's called Saints, Mystics, Martyrs, and Other Ordinary Radicals. And the class description says that each week we'll discuss a different historical figure and seek to discern the truths to which they bear witness and the ways in which they continue to disturb the social, political, moral, economic, racial, and religious status quo. And when we were, when, when Woodard and Brad Chrysler and I were talking about this class, we talked a little bit about the cloud of witnesses language in Hebrews chapter 12. And how often when we read that passage, you know, it says, you know, we've got this cloud of witnesses, therefore let us throw off all this stuff and run the race that's set before us. Growing up in, in church, hearing that, I always kind of thought of the cloud of witnesses as my uh, cheerleading section in the sky. You know, I've got all these folks who have done it before me, and they're rooting for me, and I need to, you know, respond uh, to their encouragement and their enthusiasm for what I'm doing down here on earth. But when you think about a witness, that's not what a witness does. A witness is not a cheerleader. A witness testifies. A witness has something to say. And so what we want to do here is consider uh, people, saints, mystics, martyrs, other ordinary radicals, people who have gone before us and may have something challenging to say to us. So this is going to be kind of like a history class a little bit, uh, but, but kind of going a little bit deeper than, than simply talking about historical facts. And we're not going to limit ourselves to people who had strong faith or really any faith at all in, in a couple of instances. Uh, some of these people are going to have great, deep, profound faith like Thomas Merton, but others are going to be different. We're going to talk about Thomas Jefferson, and it would be a stretch to, to call him a man of faith. Uh, we're going to talk about a Buddhist monk who uh, has great respect for the Christian tradition but is not part of it. And so for some of these folks, uh, it's going to be an absence of faith. There may be an ideology there, but not, not uh, something we would consider the Christian faith. One apology is that as we were planning you know, who we want to present, 
and you're going to see this if, if you come week after week, there's, there's a pretty glaring lack of diversity. And, and that's something that uh, has already kind of been brought to, to our attention. Most of the, the people we're going to present are white men from America, uh, with a couple of, of uh, exceptions. Um, and had we to do it over again, we might would have done that differently. Uh, wh when we had kind of a long list, we had more women on there, Dorothy Day and Mother Teresa. We had more African Americans on there, Martin Luther King and Desmond Tutu. But at the end of the day, we had about nine or ten weeks that, that we were able to, to, to do. And, and we chose these folks based on the message that they had and our familiarity with them. Uh, if I was going to present Desmond Tutu, I would have to, to, to put in some hours uh, because I'm just, I've got a surface familiarity, but not like what I have uh, with some of these other folks. Um, if we were to do it again, we might, we might change that a little bit. So uh, we beg your pardon for, for the lack of diversity there. Um, but with those uh, couple of caveats, um, let me just say that we want the class to be open uh, to, to discussion. And so we will spend some time just kind of getting the nuts and bolts of these people out there in case you're not familiar with them. But then we want to open it up and spend time talking about what challenges do they pose for us where we are right now. Um, so having said that, we're going to talk about Thomas Merton today. Uh, Jim Frost is with us. Jim knows more about Thomas Merton than I do. Many of you may know about, more about Merton than I do. Uh, but here's, here's kind of what I can tell you about Thomas Merton and why I think he's a significant person for us to be familiar with. Um, well, first of all, he, he's, he's a Trappist monk, uh, which is a, a, a particular kind of Catholic monk. He lived from 1915 until 1968. So we just celebrated last year his, the, the, what would have been his 100th birthday. He spent his early years in France. He was well-traveled and cosmopolitan. He was very academic. But he was what we would consider worldly. Uh, he, he, with all that traveling, he, he did a lot of living, hard living. Um, and he drank a lot and he smoked a lot and he, he was with a lot of women. Um, we would say that he was agnostic at best. Um, he wasn't very interested in, in God and, and church and those sorts of things until he got to be an older teenager and he was in Rome as part of his travels and he felt some connection to some of these churches. But it was very general, very vague, very abstract. Uh, he went to college over here in the United States and it was there at Columbia that he really started feeling a pull towards Catholicism. He was, he was reading a lot of Catholic authors. Friends were turning him on to, uh, to some of the Catholic thoughts. And then after only a couple of years, this would have been in 1941, Merton entered the Abbey of Gethsemane up in Kentucky when he was 26 years old. Now let me pause here and just ask, who has been to the Abbey of Gethsemane? I know I had several, several people. Jeff, uh, Jim, um, let's see, Mike Duncan. Jeff and I go every year. Uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving, Jeff and I go up to Gethsemane for a weekend retreat. And I think this year was our, do we say our seventh year, or eighth year, something like that. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is just uh, profound. Where? If you go up I-65 towards Louisville for about three hours, it's not very far off the interstate. It's, it's near, was it Bardstown? Is that the, um, very easy to get to, just takes a little while. 
the, the folks up at Gethsemane are, uh, like I said, they're called Trappists. Basically what that means is you've got, you've got Benedictine monks who adhere to the rule of St. Benedict. But then we're very familiar with, with reform movements, you know, here in the Church of Christ. And that's kind of how we got to the Trappists. You had the Benedictine monks and then you had some folks who came along after that said, you know, you Benedictines, you're getting too sloppy. This is a slippery slope. You're not taking this seriously enough. And so you had a reform movement. And that's where the Cistercians came from. And then, you know, sometime after that, in, uh, in France, you had another reform movement where, you man, these, these Cistercians are getting loosey-goosey. We need to tighten it up. And so that's where we get the, the Trappists or the, uh, what's it called, the uh, Order of the Strict Observance, I think, something like that. And they take it seriously, man. I mean, they wear the robes. When you go up there, if you want to, you can get up and pray with them at 3.15 in the morning. It's when they start their daily routine. They pray at 3.15, and then they uh, pray again at about, what, 5.15, something like that. And that leads into Mass at 5.45. <coughs> and they pray seven times a day. And they, in, in between, they study and they work. Uh, so these these are serious. I mean, Merton, when he signed up for this, he was signing up for serious, uh, dedicated times of prayer, and that's what's so beneficial, I think, about going up there, is to to take a break from our routine, driven as it is by our very secular schedule, and go be with people who you know order their lives according to their prayer times. You know, it's 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 just profound. Um, any, let me stop there. Is there anything any of y'all would like to add who have been to Gethsemane or who are familiar with monasticism? Anything that, uh, just we'll just pause here and think about anything we can learn generally from that way of life. If, I mean, I'll, I'll just add, because what you say about Merton is hard living, and, if, and I'm sure you'll get into this, but he, you know, he wrote an autobiography while he was um, kind of his early years at the monastery. I think it's been one of the highly, most highly read books in the world. You know, it's, every year it goes through new publishing. It's called The Seven Story Mountain. But I remember reading that for the first time. And I think Merton's life prior to entering the monastery, and then it's very conducive to that life of, you know, the the Trappist monks and their, their the rigor and the dedication. You know, he, he seemed to be a kind of person that he only lived his life, you know, at full speed. Mm-hmm. He was in sixth year the whole time. So when he was young, you know, he, he lived a very hard life and he was very fast living. But then once he kind of reordered himself and kind of really got attracted to the Catholic Catholicism, Catholic faith, you know, I, I think it really he was attracted to the fact that it was that that hard on the other side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's definitely a life where you know, you've got guys there, you know, we've met guys that have been there 50, 60 years, and they've done the same thing every day for the rest of their life. Yeah. And it's, it's a dedication, and, you know, Merton's that kind of person. He has that kind of, he seemed to have that kind of uh, inner workings where whatever he did, he did it. Yeah, yeah. Did the monastery, was it founded in 1848? Sounds right. It's a little over 150 years. Yeah. And so if you go there, they have a wonderful visitor center, and they have a film that's just playing on constant loop telling you about the history of the order and the history of the monastery. And they basically say that they arrived on this date, 1848. 
and prayers started the next day, and they haven't stopped. You know, it's just it's this constant cycle of prayer. And so, and so talking about what Jeff mentioned, in 1948, Merton penned his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain. Now, he had only been a monk about seven years when he wrote that, and it just blew up. It was wildly popular uh, and really put Merton on the map as an author. Um, he, was, he was really, uh, really geeked up about Catholicism at the time, and he just thought that this is you know, the absolute right way, and uh, he felt kind of superior. And some of that comes through in the Seven Story Mountain, I feel sorry for these non-Catholics. And his writing around this period, or, or right after the Seven Story Mountain, his writing is just very spiritual. Um, he focuses a lot on individual spirituality. Um, and specifically, he deals with the, the Christian discipline of contemplation. So I brought a few books here that, that if you want to, you can come look at afterwards. We've got New Seeds of Contemplation, which is just, I mean, this is, this is the one to read uh, if you only read one. Um, I brought one called The Inner Experience, Notes on Contemplation, one on contemplative prayer with an introduction by our, our little Buddhist monk friend Thich Nhat Hanh that we're going to talk about later in the semester, and then Life and Holiness, all of these just little books, just about all of them dealing exclusively with Christian spirituality and, and contemplation specifically. Would anybody like to take a stab at kind of what is contemplation? Anybody got any thoughts about what is the discipline of contemplation? Hmm. Yes, ma'am, it's Smith. I read something a couple of days ago that uh, someone wrote about how that contemplation was bringing God into the now. And I thought that was pretty brief and good. That is good. That is good. You remember who said that? Jack, it might have been Jackie Halstead in her newsletter. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, yeah, this, this idea that God is present everywhere, all the time, in every person. It's a question of whether we're aware of it. And contemplation is sort of a, a centering on that reality, that God is present right now, in me, in you, among all of us, within all of us. Uh, a very a very basic idea, but kind of a mystical idea, and something we neglect. And we've got scriptures, you know, talk about how how uh, like a vine and branches, you know, that God is in me, and I am in God. My life is hid, you know, with Christ in God. Um, this awareness that God is the ground of all being, that God is that in which we live and move and have our being. Um, and Merton is huge into articulating what is contemplation and, and why it's so essential to living uh, a life of faith. He says that this awareness of God's presence changes the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we see ourselves, and the way that we think about other people. And so what he does is he tries to articulate uh, the way that contemplation changes the way that we think about our reality. He talks about the notion of a false self. And, and he contrasts that with the notion of a true self. He basically says that you know the, the false self is something that we make up. We conjure up an idea of who I am. And it might be my profession. I may identify you know, as a lawyer 
uh, or whatever profession I have, or how much money I have, or the clothes that I wear, or the part of town that I live in, and how big my house is. Uh, it could be a million different things. I mean, all, you just you just pause for a moment and think about all the different ways that we try to build an identity for ourselves, and 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 and, and uh, demonstrate our value. You know that I don't want to live here because that's not as that's not as good. I want to live here, you know. And if I get a little bit more money, this is what I'm going to do with it. And Merton says all of that is is bound up in the idea of a false self. And what we need, yes, yes, Miss Smith. Well, you know, when I read that statement, I took it out on my walk with me, and I thought. Well, every season I've been looking at the beauty of the seasons, and you know, even thinking about fall and how there's still such beauty in fall, and uh, and then I think of that as the time of our life when we're like 60s or something. And then I when I looked at winter, and I I was trying to figure out something, but winter. There is just a whole lot of ugliness in it. And I just thought, well, age, being old, there's really not a whole lot of beauty in it in the natural. And uh, I, I kind of like to at least be in the fall, you know? <laughs> and, but I thought, it's really, I really struggle with that a lot because, you know, you, you see your your physical attractiveness going away. And so, I re you're ta I'm saying this because you're talking about identity. But I thought, I need to just admit that old can be really ugly. And that, but yet in a way, it is, it's a way that you have something to look forward to in heaven, you know, in the new, new world. And, so it really helped me tremendously, just that few minutes of contemplation on nature to really have a, a hope, a paradigm shift <laughs> mm -hmm. and in my thinking, in my identity. Yeah, so much of that is, is about appearance. So we were talking to uh, our little girl, Lila. Lila's 11 years old, and we were talking to her about this recently. Um, and I forget what brought it up, um, but it was something about... Uh, it was something about appearances and, and how much emphasis is placed on appearances. It may have been a commercial. We're really sensitive about commercials uh, because I think commercials, I think Merton, if he were here with us now, would, would say that commercials almost exclusively play to the false self. You know, they're trying to create a need, uh, a, a discontent where there otherwise wouldn't be one. That's the purpose of, of these commercials and advertising is to make you think you need this. And that if you have this, that you will be a better self. And Merton would rail against that and say, no, no, that's, that's a falsehood, you know. And so contemplation is about exposing those kinds of illusions, the illusion that younger is better, the, the illusion that, you know, women need to, to do something to their hair or their bodies or have some sort of cosmetic thing, you know, or whatever, to, to make you look younger than, than you actually are. That's just a lie. You know, and Merton would say, only in contemplation. Only, that's the solid ground where you stand, 
where you can expose those kinds of lies and illusions and falsehoods for what they are. And if you don't have that place to stand, then, then you're wishy-washy. You know, you don't know. I don't know what to value uh, because I'm living out of a, of a false self. He says that the true self is, is, is quite simply you're made in the image of God. That all people are bearing the divine image. They're just walking around made in the image of God whether they recognize it or not. And, and elsewhere he says that if you, if to, to say that we are made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. Love is my name. And everything that I do that is loving is being true to myself. Everything that I do or say that is not loving is a betrayal of my true self. Because that's, if God is love and we're made in the image of God, then that means that I am love. At my, at my most, most pure form, that the ground of myself is love. And anything that I do apart from that that's less than that is a betrayal of who I actually am. And so let me just read this to you. This is from New Seeds of Contemplation. Basically, when we, when we learn this about ourselves, Merton would say, when we learn that we are we're made in the image of love, we're designed to love, that changes the way we think about ourselves, sure, but also the way we think about other people. And so he says, we should recognize in every other human being the same nature, the same needs, the same rights, the same destiny as in ourselves. But I cannot treat other men as men unless I have compassion for them. I must have at least enough compassion to realize that when they suffer, they feel somewhat as I do when I suffer. I must learn to share with others their joys, their sufferings, their ideas, their needs, their desires. I must learn to do this not only in the cases of those who are of the same class, the same profession, the same race, the same nation as myself, but when men who suffer belong to other groups, even to groups that are regarded as hostile. If I do this, I obey God. If I refuse to do it, I disobey Him. For Christianity is not merely a doctrine or a system of beliefs. It is Christ living in us and uniting men to one another in His own life and unity. So you see from that passage, you know, where, where his, his, his focus on individual spirituality and contemplation has broken him open to loving all people. And, 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 and then we start getting into, okay, how does this challenge us? Well, where do we see ourselves not showing compassion to people in the same class, the same race, the same nation as ourselves? Um, do we show compassion to people from other groups? So let me share with you how this played out from, for Thomas Merton in 1958. He was in Louisville. He was running errands for the monastery. And he had a moment on a street corner that would kind of set the agenda for his writing uh, on war and the arms race and nonviolence and civil rights and interfaith dialogue and all sorts of social issues. Uh, this is from his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, which what a fantastic title for a book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. He says, In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference 
was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood by a peculiar gift. The challenge of, of this sort of thinking to me occurs in incidents like San Bernardino where it's difficult to attribute any kind of lovable humanity to the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. It's also difficult for me to look back at Vietnam and attribute humanity to the perpetrators of the New Line Massacre. So, you know, I think I think we fall short of lovableness and so love, when people are not lovable, is, is a real challenge. And I don't know how Merton would react to that if he were uh, shot at. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to read a little bit um, in just a minute before we run out of time. I want to read a little bit because he took that and, and wrestled with Vietnam, and he wrestled with the Holocaust, you know, because, I mean, that was going on while he was a young man. What other thoughts, just based on kind of what, some of what we've read? Jim? I just want to mention, uh, it was on my bucket list to go to that spot at Fort Walnut, mm -hmm. and I did do that, although it took me a while to figure this out. Walnut has been renamed Muhammad Ali Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> Google for the wall that you won't find it. Uh -huh. uh, but it's it's Thomas Burton Square, and there's a commemorative plaque there. And interestingly enough, it is adjacent to a bunch of night spots, hmm. uh, bars and restaurants and things. But That's good. That's so you have a square named after a Christian on a street named after a Muslim next to a bunch of night spots. <laughs> you got it. Okay. Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. That those false dichotomies, they're of no use, you know. Um. Well, I think part of the thing is is the the idea of, of contemplation is I think most people will say, Well, it's just not for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, because for one thing you don't see the benefit because you don't find the time, you know, to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not in my personality to ever be quiet and be still. I mean that's just and so doing that is is so so it's so it's very difficult then to model that to the next generation. That's right. 
And so it becomes even, as it becomes, the people who have the capacity to do that becomes, I think, smaller and smaller because of our culture and our environment. So I just see is that it says, well, the only place it, the only place <coughs> it can happen then is in a monastery. The only place it can happen is in a mountaintop in, in where you separate from it. That's the only place where it can happen. And people say, well, I'll, I'll never go there and I'll never do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think the, the struggle is, is I mean, I've, I've read stuff and I understand that it's really beneficial. It's just, you know, getting in gear to do that for a lifetime, for it to become a regular part is difficult. So then, like I said, then modeling for the next generation and for the next generation, the next generation to see the benefit of like that. It's, it's I won't say it's impossible to happen, but it's very unlikely for it to happen. Mm-hmm. I recommend the book uh, A Good Life by Robert Benson, which is uh, a book about, it, it, it's a little bit of an introduction to the rule of Benedict, but it's it's a, basically how to incorporate some elements of that lifestyle in a life outside the walls. Mm-hmm. Short and easy to read. Yeah. The emphasis on centering prayer seems to be an attempt to bring the contemplative back into our practice and walk again. It, we, we can't do really without it. and we, We'll find some pathway to it. We, we may go for a while with our extroverted emphasis, but uh, somewhere, you know, somehow our, we, we'll just cry out for contemplation and maybe not even know what it is that we're crying out for. Yeah, and I think it looks different for different people. You know, Thomas Keating was another Trappist monk who built on the foundation laid by Merton and took off with this notion of centering prayer. And he's written books. I think The Heart of the World is one of Keating's books. And he says, uh, you know, try to focus on a word for five minutes. And pick a word that means something to you and try to focus on it and empty your mind of everything else. And when, when those things come, those thoughts and distractions come, you just let them go by like debris down a river, and you return to your word. And that's something you could do in the car. You know, if you'll turn your radio off just while you drive to work or, or wherever you're going and take that time to focus on your word, that that's a form of contemplation. I know people just go for walks at Radnor Lake and are quiet, you know. Um, it looks different for different people. But, but I think that that, that, that point you know, is huge that we live in a world, a society, that completely preponderates against anything that looks like contemplation. And so that would be us intentionally going against the grain. Um, but, you know, when I taught, some of y'all came to the class I did back in the summer, the, the, the Peace and Justice in a Violent World, and over and over and over we considered all these different issues from, uh, you know, gun <laughs> violence and criminal justice and all these different things, human trafficking. And over and over again we said, are we training ourselves to be compassionate, peaceful people? Because if all we're doing is coming to, to church and, and passively listening to something then I'm not really sure we're training ourselves to be different. And Merton, you know, is very clear that, that contemplation, whatever that looks like for you, that's the solid ground where you stand on so that you don't get lost in uh, the, the fear and the hate and the scapegoating that are just all around us. Uh, and maybe it's always been that way, but boy, it really feels like it's that way right now. 
Um, let me read something. This is from a little book called Passion for Peace. And it's just a collection of, of Merton's writings about war and peace. And he starts out, he's talking in this particular article about the Holocaust and about uh, Auschwitz in particular. And I'm just going to read a few little highlighted sections here that I think are, are just poignant, poignant for us. The demonic sickness of Auschwitz emanated from ordinary people. They had been brought up, it is said, in Christian homes, or at least in middle-class homes. Not quite the same, but Christianity has been willing to overlook the possible differences. How is it that for 12 years in between they could beat and bash and torment and shoot and whip and murder thousands of their fellow human beings, including even their former neighbors and friends, and think nothing of it? People like them are in fact all around us. All they need is the right kind of crisis and they will blossom out. They will instinctively welcome and submit to an ideology which enables them to be violent and destructive without guilt. They are happy with a belief which turns them loose against their fellow man to destroy him cruelly and without compunction as long as he belongs to a different race or believes in a different set of semi-meaningless political slogans. It is enough to affirm one basic principle. Anyone belonging to class X or nation Y or race Z is to be regarded as subhuman. As long as this principle is easily available, it can, as long as it can be spread out on the front pages at a moment's notice, we have no need of monsters. Ordinary policemen and good citizens will take care of everything. That was written in 1967. And you think about what's happening right now. And you think about, again, the fear, the hate, the scapegoating, uh, the anti-Muslim rhetoric, uh, the, the refugee crisis, and the language that was used in talking about the Syrian refugees. You think about the gun culture. Uh, what would Merton have to say about the 47 people that Saudi Arabia executed? Our ally, Saudi Arabia. We're so uh, consumed with the brutality of ISIS, but our ally Saudi Arabia executes 47 people. Uh, you just think about how many falsehoods, how many illusions are, are involved, where some violence you know, we ignore or we justify, and some violence we condemn, you know, depending on who it is that's perpetrating it. Certainly our own violence we would seek to justify whether it's the death penalty or the, the massive prison population that we have, all of this is a betrayal of the belief, the conviction that we are made in the image of God. And that is our true self. Uh, you think about Tamir Rice, the little 12-year-old black boy who was shot. and That officer uh, was not indicted for that shooting. I think people are missing the point when they focus on uh, you know, whether there sh he should have been uh, tried or convicted or whatever because they're, they're neglecting the humanity of that 12-year-old boy that, that we so quickly kind of, you know, he becomes a, a pawn in a in political struggle, right? So let me pause there because uh, that's some heavy stuff and see if y'all have any uh, thoughts along those lines. Yes, ma'am. Back to contemplation. Um, is it like meditating, like the scripture says to meditate, and um, 
to be still and know that I am Lord? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I, th- I think, um, again, I think it looks different for different folks, but I think that quiet and solitude are probably two pretty indispensable aspects to it. Um, you know, like I said, I think walking can be a contemplative exercise. Also, um, if we're supposed to be praying without ceasing, that seems like that's what that is mm-hmm, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you're, if you're, you know, Brother Lawrence had this little book called Practicing the Presence of God. And for him, everything was a prayer, whether he was washing a dish or sweeping a step, that when you're, when you're aware of God's presence, you know, in you, in the person that you're with, everything becomes prayerful, you know, and then you're truly living as a contemplative. Whereas for somebody like me, I might set aside five minutes where I can try to be quiet, you know, but, but the, these folks, the masters, it became, you know, who they were, and it changed everything. It changed the way they saw everything because they were seeing more like God sees. Even, even Merton's prayer uh, that, we, that, that I read earlier where he says, um, the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. That awareness that when we, when we take, when we proclaim God's will, when we take that upon ourselves to say what God's will is, you know, what a, what a prideful, potentially problematic thing that is. When you're aware of God, when you're seeing a little bit more, you know, as God sees, maybe you won't be quite so quick to, to say this is God's will. Which, you know, anytime there's a, a, a fundraising program, that just kind of makes me a little bit nervous because it's so easy to, to co-opt language about God's will. When even somebody like Thomas Merton says, I don't know God's will. But, but so that's, to me, that's kind of got his struggle because the scriptures teach us that you know the perfect will of God. And, and so now, I've been in classes for many, many years where this discussion about what the will of God is and trying to know what that is. And, and it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's tricky for you to tell me this is the will of God. It's the same. And so I, to me, I think that's, that's where you, I can't say, tell somebody, well, yeah, this is, this is God's will. I mean, because that's, like you said, it co-ops it and it puts you somehow, elevates you in some sense of superiority that I know and you don't, right? So I, so I, I kind of get away from that. But I do think that we know God's will is. I think, you know, that I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbors, myself, and everything else flows from that. Is that God's will that I do that? Sure. And will it control my... So I... I, 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 yes, I think it can be elusive, but it may not be as elusive as we want if we think, if we try to get it down to the molecule level. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a challenging concept to grasp of God's will and contemplate on, am I living in His will? Am I doing, you know? So it's, it's, that, that's kind of tough. It is indeed, yeah. But I, I think part of that is because when we talk about God's will, we're usually talking about two different things, and we're trying to talk, and, and we often try to talk about them at the same time using the same word, because there is there is the sense of God's will in what God wants us to do, 
And much of that we know. We, we know what God wants us to do and what God expects of us. But at the same time when we talk about God's will, especially on a cultural scale, we tend to talk about what God is doing. We don't have a clue in, in, as, far, as far as the specifics go of what God is doing. We know where he wants to wind up. No idea how he's going to get there. Um, and, and, and when you talk about the two of those as if they were the same thing and as if, and, and as if they were both equally knowable or unknowable, that's where you run into trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, because basically all you get is, I know that I'm supposed to be living like this. And, and you can kind of do that. But being able to say, I'm living this way because... God is going to take me here and he is going to make these things happen and this is all going to lead to this other thing. We're just making that stuff up. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're just basically putting the God's will stamp on what you would otherwise plan exactly. to do anyway. Right. right. Yeah. right. This is what I want to do so this is God's yeah. will that yeah. I do this. Right. Other, other thoughts as we kind of wind up here. Well, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, for me, God's will is, can be very elusive. Uh, on the day-to-day level. You know, I, I feel like God's love is to love God and to love others. I mean, that's the word rules. But to live that day-to-day, I think is a real challenge. And I think that's where meditation comes in. I think as Nan was talking about walking and trying to figure out, you know, how can I love winter? Um, and that openness to... Being in diff- think about things that are difficult or can I have confidence if I'm getting older mm-hmm. and am I going to be treasured as an older person I, I think that's I, I, think it's, I think you've got to be open to not to know that we don't know yeah yeah do you have something, Eric? Well, I was just going to say, we can discuss the degree to which we can know God's will. Obviously, we can't know it wholly. Obviously, we have some inkling of it. So there's some continuum there where, where we can know. I think the contemplation or meditation is the activity of seeking and searching and listening. Um, not so that we will know the answer of what God's will is, but for the sake of seeking and searching and listening. And I think that in and of itself has value. That tunes us to God. And if, whether it's for five minutes a day or whether we get to the point where we are in a continuous contemplative state, that that's the activity. So it, it, it's not a means to an end in that by doing this discipline, we will therefore reveal God's will. That, that may happen, but I think there, there's inherent value in just the discipline of contemplation and and silence and solitude yeah yeah i think again going back to the training and compassion you know this is where it started for thomas merton and apart from contemplation i don't think he ever would have had that experience in louisville where it broke open for him and he became loving of all humanity um i hope you'll come back because we're going to talk about john lennon we're going to talk about john f kennedy we're going to talk about thomas jefferson um, we got a lot of interesting folks to talk about. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, Ms. Collins is going to lead us in you discussion. Know which one are you going to talk about next Sunday? I don't know. Do we know who we're going to talk about for sure next Sunday? <laughs> Flip a coin. Who would you rather talk about, John Lennon or Rich Rowland?
I feel like God's will is John Lennon. <laughs> we may be doing John Lennon next week. So thank y'all for being here.